Welcome. I'm Jeff Carls, Executive Director of the Institute on Religious Life, and this is our podcast series called Ever Ancient, Ever New. I am so excited to share this fantastic Facebook Live interview recording with you today. The IRL started the Facebook Live interviews during the COVID pandemic in an effort to connect our affiliate communities and the world during the period of lockdown and distancing. Jesse Weiler conducted the interviews and serves on our board for the IRL. Today's interview features Father Joshua Caswell, who is the Superior General for the Canons Regular of St. John Cantius in Chicago. The Canons Regular of St. John Cantius are a religious community of men dedicated to the restoration of the sacred and work to restore the sacred in the church and their own lives, seeking the sanctification of all. The mission of the Canis Regular St. John Cantius is the context of parish ministry is to help Catholics rediscover a profound sense of the sacred through solemn liturgies, devotions, sacred art, sacred music, as well as instruction in church heritage, catechetics, and Catholic culture. Because the Eucharistic sacrifice is the summit and the source of all Christian worship and life, members of the Canons Regular of St. John Cantius order their own lives, as well as their pastoral work in parish ministry, above all to the Masses. The Liturgy of the Hours and the Sacraments, the primary sources of life and grace within the Church. We are overjoyed to be able to share these talks and interviews with you, from these religious men and women who truly are some of the greatest treasures of the church. May God bless you and enjoy. Hello, I am Jesse of the Institute on Religious Life with Father Joshua Caswell, the Superior General of the Religious Community, the Canons Regular of St. John Cantius. Father, how are you doing today? Oh, doing very well. Great. Uh, so I'm here to talk to you about the beginnings of a religious order. It's not often that religious orders are created, especially Chicagoland area. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. But first, I would love for you to start us off in prayer. Could you please do that? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gift of religious life. We thank you for this state of life which allows us to be set apart, that we can live on earth as we are in heaven, that we can live as if we are praising God here, here on earth. We ask that you would send many holy vocations to religious orders and renew the spirit of religious life. And Lord, we thank you for everything that you've been for us during this time, how you've sustained us in times of trial, in times of difficulty and brought us through and will continue to bring us through. We ask today that as we speak about you, about your work in our lives, that everything we do or say begin with your inspiration and continue with your saving help. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Great. Thank you so much. The Institute on Religious Life has had a, a long-lasting partnership with you. In fact, your community just received the Mystical Rose Award that we uh, distributed last year. That was a very fun gala out here in the north suburbs of Chicago. Uh, but first, I want to talk about how Canons Regular got started. What was the beginning of this? What did it look like? What does that process look like? So why don't you start me off right at the beginning? Sure. So here I am in Chicago at St. John Cantus Parish. Right from where I'm sitting, I can look out the window and see uh, St. John Cantus Parish, which was a dilapidated parish falling apart, destined for the wrecking ball. Uh, along came a very unlikely priest. He was a resurrectionist. Father Frank Phillips, and uh, 
Father Frank Phillips, our founder, didn't have an explicit intention to start a religious order. So he didn't say, he didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to start a religious order. He, he would joke that if he said, if I did, I'd probably have to have my head examined because it's a, it's a lot of work. But what happened was Father Phillips was faithful to the work of the parish. He was faithful to the restoration and just using things that he remembered from his teaching to bring people back to God. And so the parish went from 40 people and one mass on Sunday to where it is now with thousands of families. And so the parish had a renaissance. It's a well-known uh, renaissance that this, this parish experienced, and um, it's gone through a lot. But in this renaissance, there were young men who were looking for a vocation to the priesthood. And I remember when Father Phillips called Cardinal Francis George at the time. He called Cardinal George and said, uh, Cardinal, why don't you come to dinner? I have some men who are interested in, in a vocation. At uh, this time, I think Father was hoping to have them become members of the Congregation of the Resurrection. But for whatever reason, it just wasn't working well. And so Cardinal George came to dinner uh, sometime in 1996 or 1997. And there he saw this whole room full of young men who are interested in pursuing a life around the sacred liturgy, a life of living the liturgy, doing the mass, doing the divine office, living in common. That was the moment at which Cardinal George told Father Frank Phillips, well, Frank, you're going to start a religious order. And so it began. So our founding date is August 15th, Feast of the Assumption, 1998. And as we began to grow, see the order grow into what it is today. So that was the that was the sort of the, the very beginnings. And we really had no idea what was happening, or Father Phillips had no idea what was happening in terms of what we, we, we would become. But we decided, well, let's follow the rule of St. Augustine. And Cardinal George said, well, you can become canons regular because canons regular take care of the liturgy and they live together like monks, but in a parish setting. And so that's kind of what makes our, our order unique. So that's a, a bit of, a bit about the founding of our order. That, that's excellent. The other hat that I wear is that I work at the Liturgical Institute. And of course, Cardinal uh, George was very integral in the beginnings of that as well. So it's very clear that he his heart was in the liturgy. But then his heart was also in the religious order, having been in a religious order himself. So it's very cool to see that intersection between his two passions, you know, the liturgy and religious order. So in the beginnings of this religious order, tell me a little bit about the obstacles that you would have to go through in order to, you know, become official in the church. Sure. No, it is a very, very big process, because when you have a new religious order, you are essentially saying that here is a way the Holy Spirit is, is working. And the church, in order to affirm that, the church has to see that no one else is doing this and that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what does the church look at? The church looks at vocations. Are there vocations? Um, yes, there are vocations. We've been attracting a lot, looking forward to three new novices entering this year, in fact. Is there a unique charism that can benefit the church in this time? Restoration of the sacred. What does it mean to restore this the sacred? Well, it's, we're not just about making churches beautiful or painting statues or putting gold leaf on altars, but more importantly, rebuilding the human heart. I think this is a, a good time for me to show those who are watching the crest of our community. So you can see there's the crest of our community, and you can see it has a jug, and that jug is a real symbol of what our order does. So you see the words on Latin underneath, instaurare sacra, to restore the sacred. So our order is focused on restoring the sacred, but that jug came from a painting 
in this church. So this dilapidated church, now 125 years old, these men come together. This painting is on our high altar. It tells the story of the miracle of jug, which occurred in the life of St. John Cantius. So you can see Father John there. He's the man in black with a hat and the beard. And he's met this girl on the main square in Krakow. And as the story goes, when she crossed the square, she was going to sell this jug of milk. And as she's walking across, she fell and the jug broke. And she was having one of these terrible days like we may have had today. But it was basically the end of the day for her because she thought she would be fired. And so she asked, uh, she's there, she is crying. Her jug of milk has broken everywhere. And along walks Father John, who is known for his charity. And he picks up the pieces of the jug and he puts it back together. The jug is restored. The jug is made perfectly whole again. And there are no cracks. He then says to her, go behind the church. You see the church there in the background, St. Mary's Basilica. Go behind the church and fill this jug with water. When you fill the jug with water, bring it back to me. Father John blesses the jug of water, and it turns to rich, sweet milk. So this is an analogy for the church. The church is a vessel, and in some ways the church has experienced brokenness. But we need to put the church back together, not just plaster it up or whatever, but actually fill it again with the richness and sweetness of God's grace. So when the crest of our order was decided and Cardinal George said, we're becoming the canons regular of St. John Cantius. That is why we took this crest and why you can see the jug with the words restoration of the sacred. Because we don't just want to put churches back together, but people's lives back together. So that's why at our church here in Chicago, we're able to hear could be a 500 to 700 confessions each Sunday. And our other church in Springfield and, and in Volo. So. But yeah, that's the story of a new new order. That's great. And that's I guess great. it's okay to cry over spilled milk every now and then because it may lead to a miracle. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the things that we notice at our churches, not only here and St. Peter's in Volo and our two parishes in Springfield, is that people tend to find us when they are most broken. And they tend to walk in our, in our doors. They may not have heard anything about the Latin Mass or they may not have heard anything about sacred music. But they walk through our doors and they're overcome with a sense of the fact that they are broken and in need of healing. And I think that's part of this charism that God has raised up of people who are dedicated to the sacred liturgy, to the common life and to prayer, who are able to put people's lives back together. So we just see that miracle happen a lot in our churches. That is amazing. The experience of entering sacred or the experience, uh, you know, the via pocritudinis, you know, the, the way of beauty and what is so compelling about seeing this, you know, for the first time or in a period where you have a broken life, what is so compelling that charges somebody to actually do something about it and really, you know, reconsecrate themselves to a life of restoring the liturgy? That's a great question. So beauty, I think, is the most powerful weapon we have, the sense of wonder, the sense of awe. Our world right now is so divided, the polarization between right and left, conservative and liberal, but when you have things that last forever, that are objective and true and beautiful, they cut right through division, right to the heart. So let me give you an example. Somebody may walk into our church, may be a complete atheist, or they may even hate the church. But when they walk in, this space overwhelms you because it's beautiful. And the space overwhelms you and it makes you smile just like a sunset or the Grand Canyon does. And whether or not you are angry at the church or whether or not you care about God, you have encountered something bigger than yourself. You're experiencing something bigger than yourself. Then, if you happen to walk in on a Sunday, 
you might smell the incense. Then you might even hear music coming from the choir loft. And we don't have earlids, we have eyelids. So the music just invades our, our soul. And then with that whole experience of the architecture, the art, all that comes together in a powerful experience of saying, there is something bigger than you and you're not just a body, but you have a soul. I always tell people, you could bring your, your dog in or your goldfish or whatever animal you want, but they're never gonna have that sense of wonder and awe that we have in, in beauty. And that's why the sacred liturgy is not something we do, it's something God gives us. It's, it's divine, it's, not, it's, it's heavenly, it's part, part of heaven. So uh, many of our brothers came in with no experience. I came in with no experience of the Latin mass. I thought Latin is what they spoke in Latin America. I had no idea. So I came from North, Northern Canada. I was voted least likely to succeed 10 years in a row, but still I was compelled by this sense of home. Augustine tells us that churches are supposed to make us homesick for heaven. And so when people have an experience of the profound, it makes us homesick. We feel at home. And that's what happened to me. I came for a visit actually in 2003, 17 years ago. I came for a visit from Canada on a two-way ticket. And I was so moved, I never left. I never went home. And I've been here ever since. And somehow I'm currently the superior general of this order. So I want to talk next about this idea of deification, this whole thing that the two ends of the liturgy, the glorification of God and the sanctification of mankind. I think oftentimes we forget about that second part, that we are supposed to be sanctified, if not deified, through the sacred liturgy. And what about seeing that true reverence in, in the liturgies that you guys do there really exemplifies that deification process, facilitates, if you will, that idea that you know we're supposed to sacrifice ourselves, get ourselves back through the Eucharist, and consume our own perfection in, in union with Christ? Deification. God became man that man might become God. The Eastern Rite calls it theosis. It means being taken up into God. So how does that happen? Well, fortunately, God became man. He became incarnate. He took on flesh. You have asked one of my favorite questions, so I apologize if I get overly excited, but I'm going to tell you my favorite line in the sacred liturgy of the whole year, and that is from the preface of Christmas. So the, the, the preface to the holy, 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 or the preface to the Sanctus has these words. I'm going to say them in Latin, and then I'll say them in English. Ut Deum Invisibilium Cognoscimus. Ut Deum Invisibilium Amorum Rapiamur. That as we recognize in God form made visible, we may be caught up in love of things invisible. That preface, those words, specifically Amorum Rapiamur, should make people blush because the church never uses the word Amor, or especially rapiamor, those are words which denote being raptured, being caught up into the, into the divine. Jesse, you mentioned coming to St. John Cantius for uh, Mozart Requiem, and whether it was the music of Mozart and the experience of all the senses in the sacred liturgy, you experience that, that through the visible things, the tangible reality, you are caught up into something invisible. So that preface of Christmas is very instructive because it shows us that through God's incarnation, that God became man that everything takes on a new meaning. The incarnation, Pope Benedict calls it the scandal of the incarnation. It's, it should make Protestants blush because we Catholics have the greatest love affair in the sacred liturgy where God catches us up into the divine. So that is what I would say is deification. And for us as religious, whether you're a sister or a brother, a priest, or even if you're a layperson, 
this is our life, that through the singing of the divine office, through participating as if we are in heaven now, we are made godlike. And that, that is our goal. None of this means anything if we don't get to heaven. I mean, why are we doing this? Otherwise, we should just close up shop. So, Absolutely. My next question is, why, why Latin? Why is it so important? Why is the church put a preference to Latin? Why are we using this language that you know, most of us don't, are, are not fluent in? What is all that business about? People from many different languages, and they don't necessarily um, speak Latin. So in some ways, the, the language is a veil. We're not supposed to understand the liturgy. We're not supposed to, um, it's not like a cognitive exercise. It's something for the entire being. So when the language is veiled, it allows us to participate and see more fully what's there. Because what's happening? The priest is speaking to God. Every day, our parishes do have English masses. So we have masses in the vernacular and in Latin. So we, we do both. We're not exclusive. Our order does both the ordinary and the extraordinary form. But the Latin language, we've noticed, rather than divide, actually unites people together. And I would say that the Sunday 1230 Mass here at St. John Cantus is one of the most diverse experiences I've ever seen, where people are there from every language. So I hope that helps. I could say a lot, a lot more there, obviously. So we go from Latin to, to chant, Gregorian chant. Why sing so much in the Mass? Why can't we just speak our prayers like we would at home, like speaking a rosary or anything like that? Why is music given such an elevated place, especially Gregorian chant? St. Augustine says... Singing is for lovers. And so when, when we are in love, we want to sing. The church is the bride that sings to her bridegroom Christ. And so through the centuries, the church has always exemplified singing because the liturgy is really, it's a love affair where we sing to our, our bridegroom. And so whether in the convents around the world, religious monasteries, singing is, is a way of participating in a fuller sense. Pope Benedict says that liturgy is not just an, an ornament, it's essential to the sacred liturgy. So it's not just, you know, like for instance, I'm aware that uh, in Illinois, uh, we are discouraged from group singing during the sacred liturgy due to the spread of COVID. Well, that's not really an option because liturgy is essential to the sacred liturgy. And so we'll just have to call our liturgy a protest, I suppose. Singing is, I guess the best way I can explain that is singing is for lovers. Gregorian chant is a very special type of music. It is one of the only types of music that has been blessed and endorsed by, by the church. So it's powerful, it moves people. We believe that Gregorian chant was given uh, to the church, not made up by men, but given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so just as you have holy water, which is a sacramental, or the sound of a bell, church bell, which is a sacramental, Gregorian chant also is a sacramental that when it is sung, it really goes right to the very heart of the soul. And something very uh, primal or deep in our hearts is moved by that experience. What does it mean to have a relationship with an institution that then has this vast network of other religious orders that you can collaborate with, you can communicate with, you can take advantage? Because you're not the first religious order to be created in America. They're popping up all over all the time. What does it mean to have uh, the Institute on Religious Life be there in support of what you're doing? Wonderful question. I really believe that our, our order may not be here if it were not for God's providence in connecting us with the Institute on Religious Life. Your founders, whether Father James Downey, whether William Isaacson, uh, some of the great people that you've had who formed the Institute were instrumental in seeing and discerning God's work in this new religious community. I'm not sure if people know this, but most new religious communities don't survive past 10 years. 
Uh, we are very blessed to be now in our 21st anniversary going forward, uh, going forward tw 21 years, which is an incredible grace. If we didn't have the resources, for instance, your national director, Father Thomas Nelson, was directly involved in teaching us classes at the beginning. I had many, many classes from Father Thomas Nelson on religious life, canon law of religious life. Um, he spent a lot of time forming us because in some way our order of canons regular is a lot like the Norbertines. So we could be considered the black nor Norbertines. We're very much familiar with their way of life, rule of St. Augustine prayer. Cardinal George made sure that we were connected with you, the Institute on Religious Life, and he saw that as a very good asset, but I would say it's been absolutely invaluable. It's been prov providential and uh, the friendships we've formed. Every national meeting, I'm sorry that we didn't have one this year, but every national meeting, we've always been involved in an intimate way, whether through providing the sacred music, the servers, being able to ornament the, the liturgies or just being a part of it, but it's, um, it's a great uh, organization. Father John Harden, of course, uh, was on our board of directors for our, our religious community. And so these people who founded the IRL have been so instrumental in informing our community. It's been just been a beautiful relationship. So now you have your constitution. What are the next steps? What are what's going to happen in the next couple of years? And, and what are you anticipating happening with the religious order going forward? Great question. So we are um, very excited to uh, look forward to the fact that we could have a canonical in, uh, approval as an institute of diocesan right. Right now, the canons regular are exist within the Archdiocese of, of Chicago, but through our constitution, we're given church authority. So this is actually the first time I have shown anyone our newly approved and published constitutions of the canons regular. And it's very exciting because um, not only were they approved by Cardinal Francis George, you can see there's the coat of arms of Cardinal Francis George. And of course, then the approval of Cardinal Blaise Supich, Archbishop of Chicago, that occurred on December 23rd. Having our constitutions, there's a lot more stability now. We're getting vocations, but the next step would be for Cardinal Supich to write a letter and for us to approach Rome and for them to give Cardinal Supich the approval to uh, set us up as a Institute of Diocesan Right. And um, I've had very good conversations with the Cardinal and he sees and reverences the immense growth and the vitality of our community. And he also sees how our community is able to bring unity within the presbyterate rather than divide. And so that's something I'm, I'm very grateful for and I'm looking forward to that. So if this is truly founded by God, then we will see that canonical approval because we are going out on a limb here and saying that this charism, the charism of the canons regular is brought about by the Holy Spirit. We don't put the charism here, the Holy Spirit does it. And when the church signs off on it, they're saying, yes, the Holy Spirit is here and they are moving. And we believe that in the next couple of years, we should see that, especially as our order continues to grow and we have more and more members in, in uh, final vows. So. so so going forward, religious organization maintained its ties with Chicago. Would it then have freedom to kind of move around and expand and grow and, you know, help training and restore the sacred all across the states and the world? Fortunately, we are already uh, in having that, that freedom, even as limited as we are. The Cardinal has been very open to sending us, for example, we currently exist in the Diocese of Springfield under Bishop Paprocki. And so we're not just in Chicago, but that freedom would be greatly increased, allowing us to be wherever we are, whether in, in Chicago, uh, different cities, could be around the world. But as far as having that autonomy, the, very, the next step after diocesan right is an order of pontifical right. And that's when you are approved directly by the Pope in Rome. 
So that is hopefully something coming. This is a standard time for religious communities. The church does not approve religious communities over a matter of a few years. So it does take, take time. Even if we are approved as an institute of diocesan right, our principal seat, meaning the principal place, will be the Archdiocese of Chicago, where we are established. Because it was really Cardinal George who discerned God's work and saw that here is something to be done for the church in Chicago. Great. Um, before we close, I just want to you know, give one last shout out. If you are in the Chicago area and as things start to open up, I, I don't know any other parish in Chicago that has more events and more things happening than than your parish there. I was able to see St. Maria Goretti as uh, she was traveling across the country and, and really pray for purity for my whole family in front of one of the great saints of purity and chastity. And so you guys have so much going on, not just with liturgies, but events-wise too. So I hope that you continue to flourish as things start to open up a little more in the, in the city. Father, would you please close us in a blessing? Absolutely. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's been an absolute it's been joy. All the pleasure on this side. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I hope that this podcast has inspired you and that you will pray along with me for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and religious life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O oh God, throughout the ages, you have called women and men to pursue lives of perfect charity through the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We give you thanks for these courageous witnesses of faith and models of inspiration. Their pursuit of holy lives teaches us to make a more perfect offering of ourselves to you. Continue to enrich your church by calling forth sons and daughters who, having found the pearl of great price, treasure the kingdom of heaven above all things. Amen. Thank you and God bless.